every time I think about Mary Queen of Scots and all her things and all her stuff, it's just so heartbreaking. Because you think, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to have some of it in a museum now? We could all just look at it and think, such an insight into the woman and her taste and what she loved and what kind of things she chose for herself. Because there's one thing looking at inherited jewels, but also the things that a woman would buy and commission for herself. I mean, oh, I'd love to see it. But sadly, all gone. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. I'm delighted to be here with Professor Kate Williams, the Oxford-trained historian who's Professor of Modern History at Reading University and who combines scholarly detail with page-turning narrative in her books documenting numerous key female figures in history. Today, we're going to be discussing the life of Mary, Queen of Scots, as depicted in Kate's best-selling book, Rival Queens, about Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary is the archetypal tragic heroine who faced stacked odds from the moment of her birth. Her story is one of murder, sex, religion, terrible choices in men, but fantastic jewels, arguably the greatest and most glittering owned by any monarch. Kate is here, slightly channeling our subject today with her long auburn hair and she's dressed in tartan, prepared for the talk. I know, Kate, that of anybody's jewellery collection you would have liked to have seen in the flesh and worn is Mary, Queen of Scots. So Mary, Queen of Scots was 44 when she was executed at Fotheringay Castle on February the 8th, 1587. And she was carrying a set of gold rosary beads with a crucifix, which until recently were displayed at Arundel Castle. But in May this year, thieves broke in and stole these and other historic treasures. But more about that later. We're going to discuss that. But firstly, I want to scroll back and talk about Mary, Queen of Scots' first taste of jewellery. She became queen at six days old when her father, James V, died and she was crowned Queen of Scotland at Stirling Castle, aged nine months. Her tiny head was too small for the crown, but sitting on her mother's knee, it was reported she thrust out her tiny hand to grip the scepter, which delighted the crowd of lords and nobles who saw this as a good omen of divinely inspired excitement. Scottish crown jewels are called the Honours, of Scotland. And I wonder, Kate, if you can tell us a little about the honours and, and what they are. Well, the Scottish crown jewels are incredibly important. And these are, as you say, the crown jewels that showed Mary as queen. And they are the oldest set of crown jewels in Britain. And there's the crown, the scepter and the sword of state. And the gold crown, it's got gems, it's got pearls. And it's, you know, it's an incredibly important part of the Scottish monarchical regalia. And so Mary, Queen of Scots, when she wears them, it's really very significant. It's really proclaiming her as the queen, as the queen of blood, even though female monarchy had a very bad rap across the entirety of Europe in the 16th century, particularly in Scotland. But I think it's really, I think it's very important that the the crowning of Mary, Queen of Scots, even though she's six days old, she's a baby, which makes a sort of big problem as a monarch because of child mortality, you could die any time. Even though she's a baby, even though she's female, she gets to use all of them together and as part of her, as part of the crowning ceremony. So it's this incredible story of Mary, Queen of Scots. She starts out with everything. She starts out with riches, with power. She starts out with, she's a queen at six days old. She has French royal blood from her mother, her father, Scottish royal blood from him, and English royal blood from her grandmother, who was sister of Henry VIII. So she has everything she could possibly need. And I think the Scottish honours were last used for the coronation of Charles II, and then hidden away from Oliver Cromwell. Which was very wise, considering he melted down the British crown jewels extensively and left there pretty much nothing but a spoon. So I think it was a very cunning move to hide them away. 
So at the time when Mary was very young and living in Scotland, there was a thriving jewellery industry and goldsmithing industry in Edinburgh. Did she inherit any great jewels from her father, James V? When you look at Mary, Queen of Scots, when you look at her history, she had just as many jewels as Elizabeth. She had just as many fantastic dresses and jewel dresses as Elizabeth. In fact, Elizabeth, as we'll come on to later, was very envious of Mary, Queen of Scots' jewels and wanted a few of them for herself. And yet that's not the image that we have of Mary. Mary really was a champion shopper. Now, I love to shop and I, I more was window shopping than shopping, but I love to shop. But Mary, you know, she would put all of us to shame as a champion shopper. And she has all the, this amazing collection of jewels, of beautiful things, and it starts from white as a child. But that's not the image of, that we have of her. I think the portraiture that she wanted painted was much more humble. They were much more simple. And of course, after her abdication and then execution, everything was taken from her and everything was lost. So it, it was nothing that was preserved. But yes, Mary, as a child, she inherits quite a lot of jewels from her father. First of all, they, they go to the regent, who is the Earl of Arran. And when her mother becomes the regent, the Earl of Arran has to give these jewels back. And by this time, Mary is in France. So age five, Mary is sent off by her mother to France to be brought up in the French court and to eventually marry the Dauphin of France, who will finally be the King of France. And Mary sets off as a very young girl. Um, just, I'm just going to say, you know, if any listeners get a bit confused about what I'm talking about at any point, they're just going to remember that everyone in the entire story is called Mary or James. So, you know, just everyone's <laughs> called Mary or James. So when Mary comes to the throne, it's it's been a lot of James. It's been James V, James IV, James III, James II and James I. So it's a long time since they've had anyone who wasn't called James and now it's Mary. And Mary has four ladies-in-waiting who are all called Mary and they all go off to the French court together. And Mary has this marvellous life in the French court. There's money, there's it's, it's safety. She's had this has this wonderful education, but she's brought up outside of the country of which she is queen. She's really treated I think, more like a princess who's really sold off a, a pawn on the marriage market, just like Catherine of Aragon was, or any of those princesses. But Mary is a queen. But it's while she's in the French court that um, she gets all these jewels. So all these jewels, when the Earl of Arran is no longer the regent, um, when, her when Mary's mother becomes a regent, all these jewels get sent off to France, where she is, and there she gets all these wonderful jewels, including a mermaid set with diamonds, all kinds of fantastic jewels. And she also, as she grows up in France, she buys a lot of jewels herself, of the wonderful Parisian jewellers, you know, top-flight Parisian jewellers. So she's got all these fantastic jewels that she buys, and it's a teenager she buys lots of jeweled gowns you know gowns with diamonds on them and she has these kind of hair bands with with gold and rubies her hair was one of her greatest beauties apparently you know it's lots you've got all this wonderful chestnut oban hair so it must have looked marvelous with all the glints with the gold and rubies so mary you know she had a lot of gold and a lot of jewels and a lot of rubies so she has her scottish jewels personal jewels for her father she has ones that she's now buying for herself because partly because she's buying with her own money, but also some of them she's buying because she is the wife of the future King of France. So and when she's officially betrothed to Francis, she's given huge amounts of jewellery that are the French French crown jewellery. And when she marries him at the age of 15, she is pretty much decked in fabulous jewellery. Some of that is given to her from the crown and some of that is bought specially. So Catherine de Medici, who knows quite a bit about jewels, uh, she's her mother-in-law, buys her lots of marvellous jewels as well. So Mary has, by the age of 15, by her marriage, a pretty extensive jewellery collection. Carol, every time I think about Mary Queen of Scots and all her things and all her stuff, I, I just, it just, it's just so heartbreaking because you think, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to have the, or some of it in a museum now? We could all just look at it and think, oh, the Mary Queen of Scots' amazing jewels. They provide such an insight into the woman and her taste and what she loved and what kind of things she chose for herself because there's one thing looking at inherited jewels, but also the things that a, a woman would buy and commission for herself. I mean, oh, I'd love to see it. But sadly... All gone. And her style. She was a very stylish, striking woman, wasn't she? So I guess she learnt that in the French court. As she loved the sort of, as you said, the simplicity. And she was sort of Coco Chanel way before Coco Chanel because she liked black and white. I love that, that she was Coco Chanel. She was little black dress. Because, Wes, when you look at her portraiture, it doesn't convey the same grandeur that Elizabeth I's portraiture does. And it's quite hard to convey this incredible beauty. And I think Mary really preferred to have a, a simple portraiture, a more humble portraiture, I think, for much of it was a relig religious reasons as well. And yet in real life, she was 
absolutely a walking fashion plate. It was gold, it was jewels, it was glamour, and it was really the most beautiful items you can have. And really, for a queen, it's it, that this is so important. You can't be an underdressed minimalist queen. That, that's just not the deal. You have to be. You have to really display the wealth of your nation. And if, if you're Queen Wegnant, and if you're Queen Consort, your job is to display the wealth of your husband through jewels, through beautiful gowns. So even if you think, my goodness, I really feel like going out today and absolutely no jewellery at all, that's just not acceptable. You have to wear these jewels. So it's a good thing that Mary did love jewels for her, their own nature, because it's such a key part of queenship and power is 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 wearing jewels. Kings kings wear jewels too, but not to the same extent that they do. And Mary was incredibly stylish. I love the idea of her as, as a pr- early proto Coco Chanel. She's incredibly tall. She's incredibly glamorous. She has this magnetic beauty. Um, and when she, she wears a, a pale dress for her wedding and is covered in jewels. So she really, at the age of 15, you know, she is this incredible, uh, glamorous woman. And not to put doomy clouds all over all the story but it's just amazing to think of her at 1558 getting married to the Dauphin all these jewels all this beauty all this glamour all this riches and what will happen to her in the future I think even when she didn't want to wear the jewels she had them all embroidered all over her dresses didn't she I read that one skirt featured 120 diamonds and rubies all embroidered in and a letter written to her mother obviously she was separated from her mother when she was brought up at the French court to Mary of Guise, asking for permission to buy two more diamonds to lengthen one of her hairbands. So obviously just glamour, jewels, no expense. And we're working up to her, arguably her finest moment, which is her marriage. Can you describe the scene on her wedding day? Well, Mary's wedding day was an incredible moment. It was a huge ceremony. Mary was the centre, this beautiful girl in pale white dress. She had so many jewels. Some of them were French crown jewels. Some of them were presents from her, her in-laws, from her mother-in-law, Catherine de' Medici, specially commissioned gold and diamonds and pearls. And Apparently the value, you, you wouldn't know what they were, the value was incalculable. So this was a statement of, of royal power. And also it has to be said that the French did rather look down on Scotland. They thought that Scotland was a small little country. Um, they thought it was, they, they were rather rude about it. And this is really Mary's statement of power and Mary's statement of power, not just about herself, but also a statement of power about Scotland, that she is the queen of Scotland. So she's not just a queen consort. She's not just a future queen consort of France. She is a queen regnant. So she is both. And she is with the jewels, with the beauty that she that has, with all the glamour and jewels are obviously something that a little easier than some things to track in history because they're normally quite carefully um, inventorized. So when uh, later Mary has to give back the jewels to Catherine de Medici's treasurer and you know there were a lot of diamonds they describe, hair pieces, necklaces and the necklaces have F on them for Francis, the name of her husband. Clearly there were also some you know, gigantic stones. There was a gigantic emerald from Peru and um, a ruby was called the egg of Naples. So it was that huge. Some things uh, from the French crown jewel she kept for herself, some presents for her in-laws she kept for herself. Um, She was allowed to keep those uh, by by her mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, but the majority she had to give back. But really, Mary, at the point of her marriage, I think we can say, you know, she had more jewels than any other royal bride in Europe and everything about Mary at this point was portraying power and glamour and femininity and the fact that she was in this unique position of being both Queen Regnant of Scotland and future Queen Consort of France. There is an eyewitness report of the wedding day. I'll just quote it quickly saying, Mary was dressed in a robe as white as lilies. Her immensely long train was borne by two young girls. She glittered like a goddess with diamonds round her neck and on her head was a golden crown garnished with pearls and rubies and one huge carbuncle. Now, we think that's the famous H necklace that was given to her by her father-in-law, Henry II. I wondered what you thought about the word carbuncle, because I think that it's obviously a red stone. Pliny the Elder, who was the naturalist and um, historian of the Roman Empire, said he named the red stone carbunculus because that was Latin for little coal. So we know it was red, And it's a question of whether it's a garnet or a ruby. What do you think? Well, I think it is just our own guess. And my guess is it's it's a ruby. I think there were many rubies in her collection when you look at the inventory of her jewels. And 
I simply think that a giant garnet wouldn't have got the same amount of attention as a giant ruby. I think as with the diamonds, with the glittering look she had, no expense was spared. And I think that there weren't many, really many semi-precious stones around her. They were all premier levels of stones. So I, I, for me, it was a ruby, but, but who can tell? And she was allowed to keep this jewel after the death of her husband, Francis. How much was she allowed to keep? Did Catherine de Medici ask for everything back as soon as her husband died? The majority of jewels Mary had to give back on the death of her husband, and she would have expected this. I mean, this wouldn't have been, although it's painful, it's not something that you don't expect. You know they're not yours, you know they're the crowns. So, and Catherine de Medici's relationship with Mary wasn't always great, and it wasn't always great after their relationship. But at this point, I think there is uh, an alliance between the two women, and certainly uh, Mary is allowed to keep some of her pieces, particularly those that have been bought especially for her, the, the, the special presence from, from Catherine de' Medici, from the king uh, and from Francis himself. So it's not as if everything that Mary has ever given, she has to give back. And also she's allowed to keep, of course, what she has bought for herself, what uh, the Guise money has bought for her. So Mary, it does mean that Mary, when she goes back to Scotland, she does have a lot of jewellery with her. Some of it is the Scottish royal crown jewellery. Some of it is from Scotland, but the majority is from France. So she has already a big jewellery collection even before she arrives in Scotland. And I guess coming back to Scotland, having not lived there for so long, for the majority of her life, she's coming back as their sort of prodigal queen arriving. I guess how important was it that she projected the image of a woman of power and how important were, were jewels in the creation of that persona? It was so vital that she projected the image of a woman of power and so vital that she projected glory, that she projected money and she projected glamour. And, and so... Mary loves jewels, she loves beauty, and when she gets back to Scotland, aged 18, uh, to take up her throne as queen, her mother, Mary of Guise, who's been regent, she's now dead, and Mary, really, she is is sort of a bombshell of glamour to Scotland. The the jewels, the dresses, the beauty. And she comes back with boats and boats and boats of stuff. Um, you know, books. She has beautiful book collections and the gowns and tapestries and beautiful furniture. She She's bought a lot of great stuff during her time at the French court. And this is really so important. Uh, Mary is quite in a very insecure position because really while her mother has been regent the the lords of Scotland have pretty much done what they wanted to do they've pretty much been behaving as they please and now here comes a queen trying to reign for herself I think her half-brother James Stuart the son of uh, her father by a mistress James Stuart really hoped to use Mary as a puppet and when he realises he can't use Mary as a puppet, he starts to plot against her. So Mary is continually plotted against. People are continually trying to kidnap her. And one ballast she has, one power that she has, is the fact that she is the queen. And she projects this through the use of incredible outfits and incredible jewels. So she does. It's fascinating. She is very like Elizabeth I in what she does. She too wears all the jewels. She too wears all the glamour. She too, you don't see her unless she's fully queened up, as well as introducing religious toleration in terms of who she has on her Privy Council, as well as saying she's happy with the religious balance of Scotland, listening to her ministers. Everything that Mary does... Everything that Elizabeth does and is congratulated for, Mary does it too, but Mary's position is so very different. And I think we also see a lot of Mary's personal interests. Mary was a real lover of pearls. She has pearls all over her gowns. She wears pearls in her hair. She wears pearls around her neck. She has these fantastic, huge black pearls, which I don't know, you know, if you read the descriptions, you think that poor old oyster must have been, I don't know, feeling very, very tired by the end of making that pearl. And she really transforms the court. She, it, 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 it becomes this place of real beauty and glamour and grace and certainly at the beginning of Mary's arrival there is a grace period in which all the aristocrats are being very respectful of her and they, they come to court and it really does seem as if it's a new beginning that this new young glamorous beautiful queen in all her jewels it's the beginning of a much more settled period for monarchy and that Mary will make a success of being a female monarch which has not happened before in Scotland. And do you think in the presentation of herself the bright coloured jewels, the bejeweled gowns. Um, do you think she's trying to, to rival Elizabeth? I mean, you, you say in your book, you give this idea of that they're, in modern parlance, they're frenemies. 
they have this kind of almost attraction and um, and then resistance to each other. Do you think the rivalry comes through also how they're presenting themselves to each other? Mary and Elizabeth are very much trying to be friendly at this point, and Mary is particularly trying to be friendly to Elizabeth. You certainly see that Mary's letters to Elizabeth, I mean, she knows that she's a junior partner. She knows that England is powerful, and she's very, very nice to Elizabeth, always writing to her, sending her you know, sending her presents, you know, Mary um, tells the ambassador that she'll send Elizabeth a ring with a with a diamond made, made like a heart and she sends over some poetry she's written herself. So Mary sends over these diamond rings to Elizabeth. It's all this sort of, you know, very sort of very friendly relationship at the beginning. Elizabeth and Mary are really making an effort to be friendly. And I think there is ambivalence because obviously they are two countries who've traditionally been enemies. Um, Elizabeth's father was constantly trying to uh, fight against Mary father and constantly trying to invade Scotland and this was one reason why Mary was sent off to France because her mother was fearful that Henry VIII was going to kidnap her. Some men around Elizabeth are very anti-Mary but I think Elizabeth, she sees in Mary, it's complicated for her because she knows that if Mary's queenship fails then it'll be used to judge her. She knows that if one queen fails, then everyone will say, all queens are bad. So Elizabeth has a sympathy for Mary as a fellow monarch because they are related and blood means a lot because poor Elizabeth, I mean, she's pretty much lost every other relation, you know. Mother had her head chopped off, stepmothers, they were executed or died. First her half-brother tried to chop her head off, then her half-sister tried to chop her head off. So you can see why she has some sympathy with the one relation she's got left. You explain that um, in the book that Mary had to marry again. Um, Scotland wouldn't have accepted her being the Virgin Queen like Elizabeth was in England. And she then made a couple of startlingly disastrous choices in Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley and the Earl of Bothwell, neither of whom you could describe at best were kingly material. And at worst, um, her union with Bothwell, you describe as the most scandalous marriage in royal history. I think it was definitely seen as such. Yes, you're right. I mean, Carol, she has, you know, there are bad, bad husbands in royal history. And really, Mary, Queen of Scots has some dreadful, dreadful husbands. Um, Lord Darnley, who she really marries, furious, as Elizabeth suggested, uh, Robert Dudley. Lord Darnley almost immediately starts to say, I want to be king. And when he doesn't get to be king, he starts joining with the aristocrats and plotting against her. Then we have the Rizzio plot by which her secretary is stabbed and she's taken prisoner. And then Darnley realises that they're all against him. So he uh, frees up Mary, but then the aristocrats detest him and Darnley ends up being blown up, I think, by an aristocratic cabal against him. And Mary, everyone says Mary has to prosecute his murder, but she knows that they're the men around her. So that puts her into a sort of nightmarish position. And this is when you really see Elizabeth and Catherine de Medici saying, you've got to prosecute these men who did the murder. Whoever did it, you've got to put them on trial. But Mary knows who they are, including her half-brother, I think, is she's very clear, he's part of the plot. And what? how can she escape? What can she do? She thinks they want to kill her next. But she does put the Earl of Bothwell on a, ba- on a show trial that seems to calm things down. But then Bothwell later tells her, he meets her, he, he, he encounters her on the road. He tells her he's got to, she's got to come back to his castle. There at his castle, he forces her. And he doesn't force her out of any attraction to her. He forces her because he knows that's how he can get to marry her because that was what men did at the time. If they want to marry someone and the father says no, they'll try and kidnap her or abduct her so that they get to force her. And then, of course, the father has no choice but to assent. So So uh, Bothwell does assault her and then she feels she has no choice but to marry him. And that is an incredibly unpopular marriage. Everyone hates Bothwell. The ordinary people don't know what's going on. And so it's seen as so incredibly scandalous. And Mary, you know, she's in this impossible position. She tried to marry Darnley. They, They have a child, the future James the sixth. That, that's what you're supposed to do as a monarch. You're supposed to get married. You're supposed to have a child. But as Elizabeth knows, you get married and immediately the man starts to try and gain power over you. And if you are, if you have a son, then people will immediately start to depose you for him. So when Mary has a son, it's really the beginning of her end, even though James is just a baby because the aristocrats who want her out of the way, her half-brother James Stuart, starts to move towards getting rid of Mary. Then they can be regent for her son. They don't need her anymore. And so this is, uh, with, with the marriage of Earl of Bothwell, that's their excuse to rise up against her. They going to battle against her. Mary is kid- is sort of captured. She's taken off to Lockleven Castle and there she's forced to abdicate. So she's forced to abdicate in Lockleven Castle and her son is now king 
and her half brother they will be regent and she's lost everything you know just and she's still in her early 20s it was quite interesting the way you described the rape by bothwell because you talked about how many historians have judged her as complicit in it and the arguments that they have made are it seemed to me exact same reasons that the Weinstein survivors didn't come forward earlier. They said she didn't fight back and that they implied not fighting back is consent. Um, She was most likely in a panic, um, very distressed. She imagined people would blame her for it. And it seemed to me so topical with what we went through with, with the Weinstein story. Nothing was different. Well, it's fascinating that you say that, Carol, because, yes, when you look at the sources, everyone accepts that Mary, Queen of Scots, was assaulted. She says it. Bothwell says it. The men around her say it. Her enemies say it. And really, that's what everyone expects at the time. If a man kidnaps a woman, if a man kidnaps a young single woman, that is what's going to happen. And... No one, you know, that's what everyone thought happened. And Mary is a very conventionally religious woman, as most women were. And she feels that she could be pregnant, which she is pregnant. She's worried, so she feels she has to get married. And for so many people at the time, they hated Bothwell, but they understood why she did it. But, you know, then it started to kind of mutate. And particularly during the 19th century, I think, during the reign of Victoria, there was this sort of horror that you could do this to a queen. And as we know, we have very, although... The Tudors would have no idea what grooming or Me Too or anything like that was. They did really recognise the power imbalance between men and women. And the fact is that convictions for sexual assault are at an all-time low. And so often, really, if you know the man, if you've had any contact with him, if you later go on a date with him or meet him again, all of these things will be used to say well, you weren't really attacked, were you? You weren't really assaulted, were you? And we have these expectations that a woman has to fight back and then never, ever speak to him ever again. And that's just not what happens in real life. And these things are used to discredit women. So the fact is that everyone said, well, she married him, so she must have wanted it, really. So you really see, I think, this this unsympathetic attitude that is used to basically suggest that you're only going to get a, a conviction if it has been pretty much a stranger who, you know, physically holds a knife to your neck. There are many countries across the world still that say if you don't fight back, it is not, uh, strictly speaking, rape. I mean, there are many countries which which have that still in the, in the statute. So I, I was really fascinated by this, that everyone in the sources said, oh, well, he assaulted her. And then they start to be this kind of turned into this romantic story in which she's complicit and he whipped her off her feet and he's a tall, dark, handsome stranger and she always wants to marry him. If she'd wanted to marry him, she could have just married him. Him. She didn't have to create a story of him, him kidnapping and assaulting her. And so it really went to the heart of me about how everyone believed her then, but they didn't believe her later. And I think this is really very indicative, as you say, about uh, how we see sexual assault, sexual harassment in our modern society and how it, lots of strategies that victims might use to try and get some power back from meeting up or, or speaking to them later, or simply, as you say, in a workplace, be, having no choice but to work with the same person. These are used to discredit them. So I, I found that really very fascinating fascinating. And Mary, of course, she's been through so much. Two husbands are dead. She's con- the men are constantly trying to abduct her to get seize her person. And that's a real contrast with Elizabeth. You know what? Men try and undermine Elizabeth all the time, but they just don't invite her to their meetings or they just don't tell her what's going on. They don't try and kidnap her. They don't try and assault her. They don't try and lock her up in their tower and try and get her to marry them. If they did, it would seem as utterly shocking. But that does happen over and over again to Mary. So as a consequence of this, she ends up being thrust off her throne and forced at at pretty much knife point to abdicate. And this is, you know, oh gosh, this is where I wish I could like, just like fly back in time. Because at this point in her stronghold, you know, she has three choices. She could go to France and be looked after. And indeed, the King of France is always saying later on, oh, please let me just look after her. I won't, I won't let her, she, she won't let her out of my sight. Let me look after her. She could go to France. She could get her, try and get her throne back because... The regents, James Stewart, are not popular. She could try and get her throne back. I'm not saying it would last for long, but she could try. Or she'd go to England. And this is the fatal choice that she makes to go to England. And in the hope that she thinks that Elizabeth will save her. her, And she is clutching this diamond, clutching this diamond with her, which, you know, she's lost everything. These fabulous jewels we'd be talking about, they were all left behind at Holyrood Palace. And some she took with her and were with her in Loch Leven. And that lot were also taken as well. So one of the few things 
things that she's kept is this diamond, which to her symbolises her emotional connection with her cousin, her sister, Elizabeth. And she thinks this is going to ensure that Elizabeth will look after her. Whoops. You describe, you say that um, she clutched the remembrance of it like a talisman, as if it had magical powers to protect her. And then later on, um, when she knows she's to be executed, she sends to the King of France two precious stones as talismans against illness, trusting you will enjoy good health and a long and happy life. Do you think she did believe in the talismanic properties of stones or do you think that was a general 16th century thought or something that was personal to Mary? I think like a lot of uh, royals, she gave gold and jewels as gifts. Uh, She certainly, you know, because what else do you give when you're a royal? So when you look at her gift giving, even when she's in prison in, in, in house arrest, she gives away some fantastic gifts. I mean, she's always, poor thing, she's always trying to send gifts to her son, but she's not allowed. The English won't let her send gifts to her son. She buys a set of gold guns for him, which is just a you know perfect present for a baby, little, little, little boy prince, a, a set of gold guns, but she can't send those. She's always sending diamonds and rubies to things. She's in, incredibly generous. She gives them to her, her friends, to her relations, um, you know, all these fantastic jewels. But I I think on top of that, as you say, she she is not just a, a sort of a traditional monarch giving away gold and jewels and not just someone who loves gold and jewels herself and is very generous. But also I think she does, like you say, believe in the talismanic property of stones and the talismanic property of jewels as well. And there are some they are something that she really does hold and clutch. She she loves things and she loves possessions and it is of course a tragic irony that this woman who was such a champion shopper who loved things so much who invested so much heart in her possessions and the things she had around her and what she gave uh, to people is someone who loses nearly everything everything that she has um after she's forced to abdicate pretty much it's like a free-for-all it's like a closing down sale everyone just flocks to Holyrood Palace and pretty much tries to get what jewels they can uh, out of it. They, they think she might come back, of course, so they want to try and get them while they can. But everyone starts fighting over her jewels and James Stewart, who's then the regent, he starts dividing them up and there's a, a wonderful thread of black pearls, which both Catherine de' Medici and Elizabeth I, they both want them. So it's a bit of a battle between, you know, these two powerful women. Who gets the jewels? Is it Catherine? Is it Elizabeth? And in the end, I think James Stuart realised it's best to throw in his lot with England. So he gives them to Elizabeth. But it's tragic to think of all these jewels. You know, she makes this incredible inventory of her jewels when she's pregnant, as women do in case they die in childbirth. And you know, fantastic, amazing levels of jewellery. And all of these are pretty much stolen from Hollywood Palace by 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 her courtiers, by aristocrats, who dis- dis- then disappeared into their collection. She has a few that she goes into house arrest, but not, not that many. She does buy some in England, but really all of her belongings are, are taken from her at abdication, and those that she has left are taken from her later after that. So during this last sector of her life, when she's still living in some style, but she's technically imprisoned in Sheffield Castle in England. I sort of feel that she moves on to use jewellery in a much more political way. It emphasises her royal blood, but it's almost like a banking system as well, because she needs, as you say, to give presents to people, to remind people where she is and her position. She needs collateral to pay servants, troops, to help people come behind her. Do you think that it becomes more political at this point? Yes, I think I think that's a good point. I think that she always uses jewels to create alliances and create friendships in while she's queen. But now it's so urgently important that she tries to win favour of people she knows, of people who might help her, and those who are her imprisoners in case that she can try and win their favour as well. So she does both use jewels to keep up the image of queen. She wants to make sure that anyone who ever sees her recognises that, that, that she is the queen as well, but also gives away jewels that she hopes might create some kind of loyalty and she hopes might mean that people will eventually help her because she's ever hopeful she's ever hopeful that eventually she'll get out of house arrest that one day she'll be free and whether or not she's queen or not that she will have freedom once more and she's very aware that the only way to create loyalty in Tudor England is pretty much to create it by giving people presents and um, bribes and not in so many words. And didn't she at this point have some jewellery made with her cipher and initials joined with Elizabeth's? 
in this sort of ever-hopeful union that they might get together. Yes, she does have, uh, you know, jewels made with her cipher drawn with Elizabeth because she she really does hope that Elizabeth will see her, Elizabeth will meet her. She's convinced that just one meeting with Elizabeth will sort out everything. And Mary is a champion charmer, she really is. And I think that this is a great fear around the men around Elizabeth. They're really terrified that uh, she they, that Mary might see Elizabeth and Elizabeth will fall for her charms and Elizabeth will say, OK, well, let her free. You know, she'll be fine. She's not going to try and take my throne. She's not going to cause any problems. Just just, just let her out. It's absolutely fine. Um, so, obviously, all the jewels have lost, been lost, but it's wonderful to see these inventories because you really get an eye for what Mary was really thinking and how she expressed it through jewels. And what she, a special thing that she has, a gold chain with a miniature portrait of Henry of France and Catherine de' Medici that she keeps for herself. And she's got a looking glass with um, miniature portraits of her and Elizabeth and uh, and all these jewels and and, and pieces and I, and, I, and one I one I think that comes down you talking, talking a bit about her talismans she has a, a, a slice of unicorn horn which I guess was walrus maybe a slice of unicorn horn set in gold with a gold chain which I think is probably a health talisman because her health gets really very poor a charm stone against poison she has you know, powdered mummy and coral and pearls I mean she has so many jewels that she chooses for herself and some of the and, and you know and I think it is very touching that She's completely isolated. No one sees her. She's not allowed to see anyone. She's not allowed to write to anyone. And yet here she is keeping portraits of Catherine de Medici, keeping portraits of Elizabeth, and really, I think, ever reminding herself that she is war, that she is a queen, and hoping that one day she'll she'll get free. And I guess there are so many people invested in Elizabeth not meeting her. And I think that's uh, um, expressed in jewellery, made to denigrate Mary's cause. The the Spanish ambassador in the London reported that the Earl of Leicester gave Elizabeth a gift um, of a jewel with a miniature painting showing her enthroned with Mary in chains at her feet. So jewellery was really used in this political way. Well, that's very nice, isn't it? Considering he was supposed to get married to her. That's so, you know, I mean, that, you know, I know that, you know, some of us fall out with our ex-fiancés, but that, that seems to be quite extreme, you know, give, a, give your rival a picture of a, a jewel with, a, with, with Mary and chains at her feet while Spain and France bowed to her. You know, so there are jewels commissioned against her and there are, you know, jewels is used as a message. And this is very much what people want Elizabeth to think because Elizabeth, much to the chagrin of men around her, is sympathetic to Mary. She does not want Mary to die she feels I think that uh, Mary you know you know Mary was deposed you know she sees in I mean she certainly sees in Mary's history with dreadful men a possible thing that could happen to her so she's much more sympathetic to her than um than, than the men around her want so they are kind of using propaganda to convince her so here's the Earl of Leicester saying well look you know this is the way to get control of Spain France and indeed all the seas is chain up Mary and pretty much kill her so uh, Mary is, is someone who is this complete it, it's fascinating how much power is attributed to her she's in prison she can't do a thing she can't get anywhere she can't see anyone and still to a lot of people around Elizabeth she's public enemy number one because they are terrified that Elizabeth will die without children and then if Elizabeth will die without children it would seem logical to most people that even though Mary is a Catholic that the throne should go to her and not only might that bring in Catholicism although I think it's unlikely I think Mary Mary would really preside over the country in the same way Catholicism for her but uh, you know the Protestant country as it had been as Elizabeth have just said you know just get on with what you do but also that people like Cecil who had been so against Mary Queen of Scots will really, you know, they'll be in trouble. Everything that they've stood for will be lost. So you said there's a huge investment in trying to get Mary to, in trying to get the, the vision of Mary a public number one. And as you say, jewellery is used for that as well. So, you know, there, there, is, um, there is, you know, absolutely incredible jewels in Mary's possession, taken from Mary, given to Mary and given to others, really, to turn them against Mary. And when you talk about her Catholicism that she does have a lot of jewellery that relates to her her religious beliefs and, and Catholicism, doesn't she, which are important to her. A lot of golden crosses, crucifixes, holy thorns. Yes, crosses, crucifixes, uh, go, um, you know, and she owns two holy thorns from her father-in-law, um, two holy thorns from the crown of thorns. She's got you know, many crosses, many, many religious crucifixes. So, and they are really quite large pieces of the rosary beads, which you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that 
she carries during her execution, they are very large. So Mary really has very significant big pieces of Catholic iconography. And I think she is not just using them for religious reasons. I think she's also making a statement. And that is, I'm not going to be quiet and subtle about this. I'm not going to wear just a tiny cross or have just a tiny set of beads. This is my religion and I am going to symbolise it in you know, in, in, a, in a great form because I am the queen. So just as you um, described her finest hour at her marriage, can you also now set the scene of her final moment when she carried um, this rosary and the crucifix that recently got stolen? Yes, so Mary is executed for treason. She's put on trial for treason. And in the 20 years in which she's in prison, she's pretty much kept free of plots. But she finally gives in to one. A plot says, let's depose Elizabeth, put you on the throne. And by this point, she's desperate. She knows she's never going to be out. So she gives in and she says yes. And this letter is uh, is always going to be taken by the English. They take it, they put her on trial and she is then executed. And uh, her execution warrant is signed by Elizabeth, but I don't think Elizabeth knows that she's being executed because they really execute her in a way that is in every way meant to show her as uh, as lesser, as as really not a queen or anyone in, uh, in deserve respect at all. So she's sent up to the block and the rosary beads, which this horrific, you know, it's such a shame, this robbery from Arundel Castle, they, they are fantastic when you go and see them. And I think I was quite hopeful that the thieves might just have seized them by mistake and wouldn't really know what they were and might find them in a hedge somewhere nearby. But there's been no sign of them in a hedge anywhere. So I, I do hope that... They've gone to a collector who will love them and cherish them. Perhaps we'll see them one day again. I think the worst possible um, outcome is that they've been melted down for gold and they've disappeared somewhere, so I hope not. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Because the gold in it wouldn't be worth that much. It's the historic nature of them that's so vital and important. That's it. And So I just do hope that someone someone out there has got them who who wanted them and is, is going to keep them. Maybe one day they'll come back to a museum. But these rosary beads, I think, why I find them so, they're, they're lost, so moving, was because Mary, as we've been saying, champion shopper. She shopped and she bought incredible jewellery, fantastic taste. I mean, everyone talks about her wondrous taste, all these jewels that they were all fighting over the minute that she was forced to abdicate. So she was a woman who had so many possessions, so many beautiful things, but they were all stolen from her. And one of the last things she had uh, was this, you know, incredible, the rosary beads. I mean, they were her, one of her last possessions. And so that to me is so significant that everything was taken from her and after her execution um, most of her belongings were, were burnt or, or, or thrown away so they wouldn't become icons the, these remaining beads are so important and also at the execution they treated Mary very badly they tried to get her to repent they tried to get her to convert so the fact is that she's holding these rosary beads and saying you know very explicitly I am a Catholic. I am a Catholic queen. I'm not going to convert. They really do symbolise her final resistance when she's being executed in a hostile country. And that, that that's why they're so significant, such an insight into her. So Mary executed, holding the rosary beads. She uh, is wearing a, a red petticoat and a corset, the symbol of Catholic martyrdom. And so even though they try and execute her, it's a very brutal execution that acts, you know, takes three goes and the executioner likes to shows off everyone the fact that her hair has lost its colour and she's wearing a wig. It, 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 there's a lot of humiliation there. Really, the, these beads are so significant. And after Mary is executed, really, in Fotheringhay Castle, um, the, the her belongings are thrown away or burned. The Her servants are locked up so the, the, the news can't get out. She Her heart is taken out and put under the under a, a mound in, in the, near the castle, so that even that can't be a can't be used as a relic, because they are just terrified that she will be used as a relic. So everything is stolen from her: her beads, her belongings, her jewels, her dresses, her book, and finally her heart. But how did the beads survive? Because, as you said, they didn't want her to become a martyr, and they they destroyed everything. Did she hand them before she died to the Countess of Arundel or how did the Countess of Arundel land up with them? As you say, the rosary ended up with the Howard family in Arundel Castle and every other thing that Mary had pretty much was stolen from her, was taken from her, was burnt, was destroyed and the rosary survived and I think Mary bequeathed 
to the Howard family. It was they were she saw them as friends. Of course, the Earl of Norfolk, who'd been part of the family, he did want to marry Mary, and Elizabeth had him pretty much chopped her, chopped off his head for that. So she did see them as some of her last allies in the country. When most of the other people who she'd seen as allies had completely turned against her, and I think that this bequest perhaps was carried out when others were not. Because really, I think people around her thought, well, perhaps it might be rather blasphemous to destroy some rosary beads. So they were sent as they should have been to the family and were conserved in Arundel Castle, of course, for years, survived wars, survived everything that's happened to this country. And it's just heartbreaking that they're now no longer there to see for visitors there. And so yet another thing that Mary, Queen of Scots, had was taken from her. And I think the couple of jewels that survive from her time, as you say, most things were taken, destroyed, have been melted down, long since recut and reset. There are a couple of jewels, I think, which show her, the, her legacy triumphed in her death. They show the importance of her royal line and her, her lineage. I thought of the, the Lennox jewel, which is one of the most important early jewels in the royal collection. It shows the ambitions and the hope of the future for her son, and it shows how um, hers and Darnley's son would become the future James VI and James I of England. Will you tell us a bit about that? The Lennox jewel wasn't Mary Queen of Scots, but it shows us so much about the life of Mary Queen of Scots because it's commissioned by her mother-in-law and everything about it shows the ambition of Mary's mother-in-law for her grandson, for the future James the sixth of Scotland, first of England, they they think, they know, they say to themselves, Elizabeth's not going to have an heir, our grandson will be king. And so in this beautiful, beautiful piece, you see it, it's just gorgeous, you know, the, the colours, the gold, it's red, it's blue, it's, it's, it's just so beautiful. But in it, really, is such a tragic story, is the fact that for so many people, including Mary's mother, in -law, including Mary's mother-in-law, Mary is someone to use for power. Mary is someone to gain power out of, that this fantastic jewel really encases the hopes of the family of Lord Darnley, that marrying Mary will gain power for the family and glory. And of course it did. There is a large necklace in the National Museum of Scotland called the Penny Jewels, um, gold filigree work, um, which are like perforated gold containers that contained musk, herbs, spices. I guess there were so many noxious smells in the 16th century that it could uh, mask these smells. Do you think those belong to Mary, Queen of Scots? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's said that they could have done, and the, the Clarks, uh, one of their family, um, married a granddaughter of Giles Mowbray, who was one of the Queen's servants during her English imprisonment, and it's possible that he either was given um, some beads by Mary, Queen of Scots, given some jewels by Mary, Queen of Scots, and this is what's happened to them now. But we don't know either way for sure, because obviously we don't have a letter from Mary saying, these are your beads, Giles. So we don't know. But we do know, of course, is that Mary had uh, a lot huge jewellery collection we've been talking about. She had wonderful, wonderful jewelries. She bought a lot of jewellery and that she was very generous to servants who she felt served her well. And she did give away miniatures of herself, of her son. And there's something else that people like to believe has survived her, which when you talked a while ago about the Battle of the Black Pearls, these extraordinarily fine, large pearls that came from Catherine de Medici, there's um, a school of thought that thinks these pearls survived and came down through the British royal family. And indeed, some of them might still be in the crown jewels now. Yes, I mean, it's a wonderful school of thought. I'm not exactly sure of that one myself, that we know for sure that Elizabeth had those black pearls. And apparently they were huge, apparently the size of nutmeg. And Elizabeth, as we know from the Armada portraits, had loads and loads and loads of pearls. So certainly we would expect at least one of those strings to survive and go down the family, you know, because Elizabeth had so many pearls. You know, she's more, more pearls on the Madonna in her, in her sort of fake pearl mode. So you would imagine that some of these has gone down the royal family. But, it, it, you know, there, and there is some talk that some of Elizabeth's pearls ended up in the imperial state crown and some of those could have been Mary's but I think we really don't know for sure either way and of course you know our, our, what really alienates us from so much of we, what we Elizabeth's belongings are the fact that Oliver Cromwell really melts down all of the crown jewels and sells off everything else so really I think the majority of what Elizabeth had from Mary Queen of Scots some of it gifts 
Some of it sold by the Scottish to her, some of it taken, and I think most of this was probably pawned by Oliver Cromwell or taken by Oliver Cromwell. But it would be marvellous if some of it had survived and some of Mary's pearls ended up in the, the, the crown jewels as we have. But I'm, I, I, I think we will never know either way. And do you think, finally, Kate, that if we could compare her jewellery collection to any other British monarch, could we say it was finer in its glory days than Queen Victoria's? Could we compare it to Queen Elizabeth II's, Queen Elizabeth I's? Where did she stand in her jewelled regalia in comparison to other queens of England? I think that Mary absolutely has one of the greatest jewel collections in British history. And I think I would say that one of the greatest, really, in European history as well. And where I think she's particularly important is the fact that some of these other monarchs just have jewels. They just have massive jewels. Victoria just has massive jewels that are taken from the empire. In a lot of Mary's jewels, you see a real creativity and you see a real beauty, different forms, a mermaid, a tortoise, the miniatures and uh, and sort of the intricacy of pearls. And I think that really you see so much about Tudor monarchy through Mary that it was about grandeur and it was about glamour and it was about the image of the Queen. But also there was so much emotion underpinning it and so many of her gifts to everyone from Elizabeth to her dreadful husbands to to her son are all about emotion and family connections and blood. And so to me, Mary does have not only one of the greatest jewel collections that any monarch has ever had, but also one of the most tasteful jewel collections that any monarch has ever had. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, so much for sharing your knowledge about Mary, Queen of Scots, her life and her jewels. Well, I, I'm very grateful. Thank you, Carol, for having me. And I'm ever hopeful, as, as I think so much of us Mary fans are, that maybe something might come out of the woodwork. We might see another Mary item one day. But so many of Mary's pieces are, you know, when you read the descriptions of them, they look so beautiful. You think, I'd really love to wear that. And they are absolutely divine. And I think that Mary, you know, and I think it's just so touching that Mary, you know, that almost the first thing she does is grab for this scepter as we're talking about the coronation is put the crown on her head and the last thing she does is hold on to the rosary and possessions the crown the scepter the rosary they really craft her whole life thank you so much kate thank you for listening for more information about this and other episodes of if jewels could talk please go to our website carolwalton.com slash podcasts And if you liked it, please share it any way that you can. You'll find us on Instagram where you can view images of the jewellery we talk about. And please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. Please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. Because over the Cannes Film Festival, when there was yet another jewellery heist, I caught up with the great fashion guru, Elizabeth Saltzman, who's known for dressing the best young actresses of our generation, women such as Gwyneth Paltrow, Jodie Comer, and Shursa Ronan. Elizabeth gives us the lowdown on fashion and jewels behind the scenes on the red carpet. Please join us then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, Music and editing by Tim Thornton. Graphics by Scott Bentley. Illustration by Geordie Labanda. And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.